following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You're in Mark 13. We're going to read these 37 verses of this chapter, and then go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 1. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake 
Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for these people who come each week hungry to learn about you and your word. Speak to them, please, this morning. Uh, speak to them through your word, spirit. Help them to understand. Use my very feeble words to, to open their eyes to your truth. Uh, I pray that if in any sense anything I have planned to say this morning is not reflective of your truth, your purpose, your intention with this text, that you will protect us from it, that everyone will walk out of here more committed to you as a result of what we see this morning in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I began by telling you that from a teaching perspective, I felt like I was kind of at a chicken and the egg kind of moment, you know, I, on the one hand, I felt like I needed to start walking through the text in order to show you a concept that I think really in the end can only be fully seen or understood by walking through the text, but on the other hand, I kind of felt like I needed to show you the concept first in order to walk through the text. Well, if you were here last week, you know which of those two paths I chose. I decided to show you the concept first and then wait until today to begin walking through the text again. The concept that we looked at last Sunday is both simple and extremely complicated, and it has to do with where you draw a line between two subjects that Jesus himself is trying to separate here in Mark 13. And those two subjects, of course, as you should well know by now, if you have been with us these last three Sundays that we've been talking about this, is the destruction of the temple that he predicted in verse 2, and the end of the world that the disciples assume will occur at the same time. Well, that assumption is wrong. I mean, we know it's wrong from our perspective because the temple is destroyed and the world hasn't ended. So we, of all things, can at least affirm that much, if nothing else, that their assumption was wrong. And in his teaching here, Jesus is trying to draw a line, a distinction. He's trying to separate these two events. And thus, the question for us last week uh, is, where is that line drawn? It's somewhere here in the text, so where is it? Where should we draw the line between these two events? In other words, which things here in Mark 13 are before the line and therefore refer exclusively to the destruction of the temple? And which of the things he talks about here are after the line and therefore refer exclusively to the end of the world? And please note my use of the word exclusively. It is not an accidental choice on my part. I, I'm simply saying that because I have yet to find a scenario here in the text, logically, grammatically, theologically, all of the above. I've yet to find a scenario where it makes sense to, to say that the things he's talking about here actually refer to both events, since his purpose in saying it is to separate them, to divide them out and distinguish them. And so I think what that does is it, it forces us to put things on one side of the line or the others, and making that decision is hard. I mean, I tried to give you guys just a sense, just a taste of that last Sunday when I walked us through that little exercise of having you look at each paragraph and just asking you a very simple question. What is it referring to? I mean, you just from a first glance reading, as you had to walk through that, 
That was hard, wasn't it? I mean, some of you came up to me afterwards and told me as much. That was really difficult to do. And it's made even harder by three particular facts that I think are true of all of us. Number one, that every one of us in this room don't know what we don't know about the text. We we, we have a certain amount of ignorance, culturally, biblically, etc., that we bring to this passage and to all the scriptures, really, for that matter. Number two, we end up then assuming things of the text that we shouldn't assume. And number three, that we allow ourselves to be more influenced by our backgrounds, our previous teaching on the subject, than we do uh, by the text itself. And so how do you fight or work against that? Well, for me, you know, it's true for all of us, not just me. You, know, you have to do the best job you can to lay all of that stuff aside, you know, as best as you can to put it aside and just come back to the text and let it speak for itself. And we would all, I think, affirm that that's what we want to do each and every time we come to the scriptures, that we want to just let the text speak for itself. But it's moments like this where I think it really gets put to the test, where coming to the text and letting it just say whatever it wants to say, especially when it goes against things we've thought before, all of a sudden puts us at a moment of tension in our hearts. Like, how do you process that? How do you, how do you handle something that's taking you in a direction that's not what you originally thought? How do you, how do you come to a passage that, and come to a, a certain conclusion that raises more questions than it answers? You know, that, that's been my struggle in my case. And so, you know, I, I just last week took a few minutes to present to you how I had drawn my line. And I based this, as I said, and giving credit where credit is due on some of the work, the scholarship of R.T. France, how he showed me, and I could not refute it, though I tried, that grammatically, sequentially, and logically, all three, there is an unbroken chain of argument, reference, and teaching that begins in verse 5 and goes all the way to verse 31 and is referring to one of those two main events, destruction of the temple into the world. And that after that, there is another smaller section of teaching, verses 32 to 37, that refers to the other main event, okay? There's a clear shift that occurs between 31 and 32. And so a lot of teaching on one event, a little teaching on the other event. Uh, other event. And, and, and what I said to you last week is that I believe that everything in verses 5 to 31 is referring back to the, to the destruction of the temple and that everything 32 to 37 refers to the end of the world. Now, I'm not going to go back and defend or explain that in any detail this morning. If you were not here last week, you're visiting, it's your first one and only time you're going to be at Cornerstone kind of moment, you got to go listen, okay? This is week number four in this chapter. I'm going to have seven weeks in this chapter, much less Mark as a whole. Uh, (laughs) And believe me, I did not want that. I wanted two. I said that originally to to Jordan and Chris. We were going to be in it two weeks, so I am not a prophet. Um, you, you have to go back and listen to, for yourself to understand how I develop that and my reasoning and argument behind it. I will not do that today. Now, today we need to begin walking through the text. We need to, we need to begin uh, working through this in order, as always, to understand it properly first, uh, to begin to try to answer some of the questions that have been raised in our minds by the things that I have pointed out so far, and in the end, to point us back to Jesus. Okay, so with that in mind, let's begin. As you will recall, 
The disciples' original question to Jesus was about the signs and times in regards to all these things in verses 3 and 4, okay? And that is, in their world, as you look at Matthew, compare this with some of the other texts that we can compare it to, that is the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. And beginning in verse five, right, verses 5 to 13, which is what we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus begins answering that question by telling them what the times and signs are not. Do you remember this? Uh, it's not spiritual deception, it's not armed conflict, political upheaval, natural disasters, uh, human suffering. None of those things are the signs. None of those things tell you the time of the end. All of those things, as bad as they are, they're just the Braxton Hicks of the end, of whatever is coming here. Okay? It's, it's not the real labor, it's the beginning of labor pains. It's, it's just a foretaste of what's to come. And during that time of interval between when Jesus is saying this in Mark 13 and, and, and AD 70, he tells the disciples there in verses 9 to 13 that they're going to suffer for their identification with and commitment to Jesus. If you look back just at those verses, they're going to be delivered over to councils and kings. Families are going to betray families. You'll be beaten. You'll be hated. You'll be killed. All for my name's sake. But through and during all of this, the gospel is going to be going out to the nations. And what I referred to was the fact that here in these verses, in this time period between Jesus' teaching and AD 70, that in a real sense, these verses serve as a synopsis of the book of Acts. I mean, you can go through and compare all the things that are said there to what's said in Acts, and you see point by point by point, it happens. And I think that the reason Jesus is telling them this, as I said to you two weeks ago, is that he does not want them to spend their time waiting for this uh, event to come by hiding in a bomb shelter, by thinking that the right response to this, this prophecy is to go hide. No, he wants them to go out and live for him and proclaim him to the whole world. But here in verse 14, there is a clear but connected shift in his answer. You know, here are the things that are not the signs. These things do not tell you the time, but when. Okay, can you hear the transition beginning to occur in his, an his answer? I mean, yeah, it's pretty obvious. He's now beginning to shift towards the question they had asked, and he begins doing so by saying, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. And let's, let's just pause and think about this. And I want to draw your, your attention first to that little parenthetical comment again here in verse 14. I mentioned this way back now in week one, that, that the vast majority of people in Mark's day were illiterate. They couldn't read. And even if they could read, they would not be wealthy enough to own a book, much less a portion of scripture. And so that leads me to believe that this comment is not so much aimed at the general reader, though in our context today, with the ability to read and with the scriptures in hand, I would say it applies to all of us. But in Mark's context, I think he is aiming this at the person within the church whose job it was to read, teach, and explain the scriptures to the people. In other words, I think he's aiming it at me. And I find it interesting because the very first and only thing that he says to me that I have to understand is this reference to the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. I mean, what in the world does that mean? Because if you look ahead and just follow the, the thought flow and the argument flow out, 
you will see that every single thing after this comment is really based on and built off of this. So this is, this is kind of important to understand this correctly. Well, the first thing you need to know is that Jesus isn't making up this really ominous sounding term or title off the top of his head. I mean, he's using language that comes directly from Daniel chapter 11. Now, if you haven't read the book of Daniel lately, I would uh, very much urge you to do so. You'll be served well, I think, to go back and read it and think through it. Daniel lived uh, and ministered during a just critical moment, not just in the, the life and history of the nation of Israel, but in really the history of the world. He's taken captive by the Babylonians when they conquered Judea. He was a young man. He was seen as a man in whom there may be some potential for usefulness to the Babylonians. And so he's brought into Nebuchadnezzar's court. He's king of Babylon. He's trained. And sure enough, he becomes one of the king's best advisors, a man of great wisdom, insight, used by God in so many ways. And when God began to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar certain events that were coming in the world, uh, he does this in dream form to Nebuchadnezzar, God gives Daniel the ability to understand and interpret those events and explain them both to Nebuchadnezzar and to everyone else so they would know what was coming. You know, in those dreams and in those visions, God tells Nebuchadnezzar about the fall of Babylon at the hands of the Medes and Persians. He tells them about the rise of Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire, as well as its eventual breakup into four parts after Alexander's death. He talks about the rise of the Roman Empire and all the, some of the things, I should say, that will occur during that time. And all of this, as you read through Daniel, is occurring over multiple dreams, multiple visions, multiple foretellings of the future. And this is hundreds, hundreds of years before any of these events occur. And in Daniel chapter 11 as Daniel is seeing some specific details, I mean, some of the most detailed information that is given there in the book of Daniel, we read these particular words. He says, At the time appointed, he, which is one of the kings that he's talking about, the Greek kings that uh, he is prophesying about at this time, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant, not like in righteous anger defending the covenant, no, just attacking the people who have not been faithful to God, just as God's judgment. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, it's important to note as you're reading this, again, that, that this, is a, this is a judgment of God on Israel as it has walked away from faithfulness to him. And it's also important to understand by, that by the time Jesus is making reference to these words here in Mark chapter 13, the Jews had already seen the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies here. One of the Greek kings, as you look through world history, was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And around AD 167, 168, he attacks Judea and Jerusalem, killing tens of thousands in his path. Okay, It's massacre, as it is described by those who live through it and write about it. But that's not the worst thing he does. That's not the thing that Israel, as they look back on those events, care about really at all. In his anger against the Jews, he enters the temple 
He puts an end to all Jewish worship, not just in the temple, but throughout all of Judea, throughout all of Israel. He, he outlaws it, puts it all to an end. He sets up an image of Zeus there within the temple. He then erects an altar to Zeus over top of the altar of God, and he sacrifices pigs on it in thanksgiving for his victory. Now, I don't know how much you understand about Jewish culture, history, etc., But this would be, in their minds, the pinnacle of offensiveness and blasphemy. Okay, I mean, just think through the things. Not only does he stop them from worshiping the one true God, he erects an idol. What what does God say about idols? Are they good or bad in his mind, you know? Bad, okay? Excellent. Uh, He desecrates the temple, not just with this idol, but with the sacrifice of unclean animals, pigs of all animals, the worst of the worst. He he desecrates the temple. These are abominations to the people of Israel. And that's not a word we use very often. You never use that word outside of talking about the Bible or something in it. But but an abomination is something abhorrent. It's something that is so vile, so bad, so evil that it's almost without equal. These are abominations to the people of Israel, and it makes the temple unusable for worship. I mean, they couldn't worship anyway. It had already been like outlawed. We'll kill you if we see you, we catch you. But even if they could have, now they can't. The temple has been defiled. It is unclean. It has become desolate. And this is what Daniel is referring to in chapter 11 when he talks about someone appearing, and you just look at the verse, profaning the temple and fortress, taking away the regular burnt offering, setting up an abomination that makes the temple uh, desolate, unusable. And just as a freebie, though it does have some attachment back uh, into our uh, understanding of Mark 13, this event, Antiochus, this event will have huge ramifications for the people of Israel all the way to today. Every one of us have interacted with this event without realizing it. You see, his occupation of Judea will eventually lead to a group of, of Jewish zealots, rebels, rising up, trying to overthrow him, to kick him out of the land, to to take back the temple, to cleanse it, to do all these things, to reinstitute the the, the worship of God. We call that the Maccabean Revolt. And it's things that occurred during the Maccabean Revolt that lead to the holiday that you and I know as Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a a direct outflow of of these things that that happened back during the days of Antiochus. However, of course, in the end, the uh, the revolt is, is really a failure because the land is not truly freed from Gentile rule. In the end, it really just changes hands. The Romans end up coming in and taking over. And that, of course, is the context of Jesus and his disciples, you know. It's part of the reason why the Jews despised the Romans so much. I mean, they would have hated Roman occupation no matter what. I mean, don't get me wrong. Had, had Antiochus never happened, and the Romans had just come in and taken over, the Jews would still dislike them. But remember that the immediate context of the Roman occupation, just preceding it, is the Greek occupation and all the things that occurred during that time. And so they are, they are particularly sensitive to having Gentiles in the land. And it's also part of the reason why why Rome is so sensitive to to the Jews in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. They know these are a people who rise up and fight if if you mess with their system of worship. And so they tried as much as they could to leave that alone. You know, the temple kind of works on its own. As long as it's not causing problems for us and our rule, we're totally good with it. And so it's, it's kind of a delicate balance 
you see in the New Testament, in Gospels, you can feel it constantly, this tension between Roman rule and Jewish autonomy. And, and it's just, as long as they were pacified, as long as it was fine, no problems. But ultimately, of course, we know that that wouldn't last. With that cultural and biblical understanding in mind, maybe now you can see why this reference to the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be should really grab your attention. He is making a direct reference to one of, if not the worst moment in Jewish national history up to this point. And please note my use of the word national particularly. It's instantly understood by everyone who's listening, who knows of the history of the time, of the the culture. The abomination of desolation is some kind of act, person, or situation that will cause the use of the temple and the system of worship that the Jews are used to and, and love to come to an end. And notice that I described it as an act, person, or situation. Again, not unintentional. You know, if, if you look at this text here, there's a unique grammatical thing going on the grammar of the words abomination of desolation would make you think that Jesus is referring to a thing. Okay, We might think of like the, the, the idol, the, the statue of Zeus would be the thing that was the abomination of desolation, right? So a, you might think of a thing. However, as Jesus goes on to describe it a little more, he talks about it standing where he ought not to be, thus making it sound like a person. You know, so which one is it? And I don't think Jesus and or Mark are making a grammatical mistake here purposefully. I, I wonder if they're making a purposeful ambiguity because maybe it's not just a thing or just a person. Maybe it's the whole situation. I think Luke maybe even gets a sense of that as he talks about it in, in chapter 21. It's probably both. It's the whole situation. And Jesus says to his disciples, when you see the, the things that happened before begin to happen again, when you see the situation begin to play out again, then, and notice now the actions prescribed by him, as well as a few additional thoughts that I think he gives here. Number one, he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Number two, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, which is kind of funny, because how can you flee if you don't go down, right? It's kind of like the, in, in the cartoons when people take off real fast, and there's like a cloud outline of their body left, and they're just gone. It's it's what he almost sounds like there. He says, let them not go down to, to enter their house to take anything out. Uh, let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Number four, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Number five, pray that it may not happen in winter. And as you read through those action items in response to the appearance of this abomination of desolation, I think it's a situation that is reminiscent of what has happened before. Let me draw out three observations for you from this that will finish our time out this morning. First, these commands and thoughts of Jesus, these responses that he is prescribing to them, validate, I believe, our interpretation that the appearance of the abomination of desolation has to do with the destruction of the temple alone and not with the end of the world. I think it validates that it can only be referring to that because none of these responses would make sense in the other context. None. I mean, just look at them. I'll, you know, if the world is ending, 
why do just the people of Judea have to flee to the mountains? Should we all go there? Like, should we all get on planes and fly because the world will end everywhere but in those mountains? Um, or, or the commands to not worry about your stuff. If, if the world is ending, I don't think that really makes sense because there's nowhere you could take your stuff to make it safe. Or alas, or pregnant and nursing women. Why? Is it going to somehow be better for the rest of us who aren't pregnant or nursing? I mean, if the world's ending, we're all equally affected. I mean, you could, you could do this with each point. You, you see what I mean? They don't make sense within the context of the end of the world, but they do make sense within the context of some coming destruction of the temple and by implication Jerusalem and perhaps all of Judea. So the response is flee. You know, in the words of the great philosopher and scholar Monty Python, run away. You know, that's, that was for all the geeks in the room. Um, you know, this is your moment. This is your chance. When you see these things beginning to happen again, flee now. Leave now. Don't delay. Don't worry about your stuff. Worry about your life. This, this makes sense in one context, but not the other. My second observation, and it is in light of the first one, is you're beginning to get the sense that whatever is coming, which from the disciples' perspective at this moment is still obviously all to the future, Whatever it is that is coming, it is going to be epically bad. Epically bad. And it's not just bad for the temple building itself. You know, in verse 19 here, Jesus begins to make this very point. He says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he, he shortened the days. Now, let me just pause right here and make a few comments. I mean, how should we, how should we read this? Well, I'll mention something just briefly today that I'm actually planning to develop out in more detail uh, next week. But I think there's a real temptation for us to read these words like Amelia Bedelia. How many of you liked Amelia Bedelia books, right? Okay, those are, if you don't know what Amelia Bedelia is, uh, she is the main character in a series of children's books where she is a lovable but bumbling maid whose problem is that she cannot interpret normal human communication. She, she can't. So, for example, if the lady of the house where she works says, listen, I'm going to go out today, please dress the turkey for dinner, she doesn't think about putting seasonings on it and stuffing in it and cooking it so that when they get home it's ready for, for the meal, she puts it in a shirt and pants and sits it at the table. She dresses the turkey for dinner. And, and this, of course, is what makes her funny because she can't interpret metaphors, figures of speech, hyperbole, common cultural references, dual meaning of words. <laughs> she, she doesn't understand any of this, and so it, it makes her books enjoyable to read because you see all the kind of crazy things that she ends up doing just because she can't figure out the obvious meaning of stuff that you and I look at her and like, it's so simple, you're stupid. You know, we laugh at her. We teach our children to look down at other people by reading her books. And we love it. That's Amelia Bedelia. And I think that a lot of us, as we read through Mark 13, and probably prophecy as a whole, we're tempted to read it as Amelia Bedelia, unable to process just normal communication at the time. You know, when Jesus says here that in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be, we fail to do at least two things. Maybe more than two, but at least two things. Number one, 
we fail to ask the reference question. And by that I mean, in reference to what? What is he referring to specifically here? Is it a reference to the nation of Israel as it existed in the first century, his context? Or is it in reference to the Jewish people as a whole, regardless of their national status? Or is it in reference to all humanity throughout all time? Which which one is it? Well, understand that each of those things will take you in a different direction, right? I mean, if you just play that out in your mind, each one would go in a different direction. Personally, I think the simplest and most contextually correct answer is to say that he's referring to national Israel, because that is, after all, his context. The nation, he's talking to them and their, and their world and their understanding. I don't see it as a reference to the Jewish people generally, those outside of national Israel, and I definitely don't see it as referring to all humanity. So, so that's one issue we fail to think about. But here's the second one and why I made that comment about her, Amelia Bedelia. We fail to take into account just normal human communication as we read this. You know, if you came to my house and I'm eating a piece of cake and I offer you some and you refuse because you're on a diet or something stupid, and I say to you, listen. I say, listen, this is the best cake you have ever had in your life, best you'll ever have in the future. Nothing will compare this. Am I... Am I in any way attempting to speak literal truth to you? I can't answer and make any of those comments. All I'm really trying to say is that this is really good cake. It's a big deal. You should eat the cake. It's really good. And so as I, I don't know as we read these words that we should understand Jesus is trying to rank this event of tribulation versus all the other events of tribulation that have occurred or will occur in the future. I'm not saying that he's not necessarily. I just don't, I think he is at least just simply emphasizing to them how terrible this coming judgment of God will be. It is terrible. I mean, if you thought that Antiochus Epiphanes IV was bad, you should see what's coming. It's like, that's more the sense of what's going on here. And just, you know, as a point of historical interest, because I like this. And, and the Maccabeans wrote about uh, how Antiochus, his armies killed tens of thousands in Judea as they marched through. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian who is on the payroll of the Romans, so he's trying to put the Romans in a good light. When he writes about their war, he talks about the hundreds of thousands that the Romans killed. So, I mean, it's way worse, way worse than what you've seen before. And I think that's Jesus' point. Look at the next comment. He goes on to say that if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. And again, are we reading this like Amelia Bedelia? I mean, no human being. In what context? In what reference? In the, no human being in Judea? No human being in national Israel? No human being in the Middle East? No human being in the entire world? These are all different points. So how do you... How do you want to expand this remark, or how do you want to understand it? Well, I'm going to just stick with the text again. Since Jesus has only told the people of Judea to flee, I'm guessing he's probably just referring to them, that no human being in Judea would be saved if, if God hadn't cut short those days. He says, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened them. And there's two ways you can read this, and either could be right, and I honestly do not know. The word elect just means chosen, and he could be referring to the people of Israel because they are his chosen nation. And he could be saying that if God in his mercy had not cut short the days, none of the na nation of Israel would have lived. That's one option. Or 
He could be using it in the Christian sense of believers, that for the believers who've been caught up in the midst of this turmoil and this tribulation, if he hadn't cut short the days, they wouldn't have survived, and so he does. Either way, I see it as a reference to God's faithfulness, both to his promises and his people, even in the midst of judgment. And so it doesn't affect our understanding one way or the other. He goes on, he says, And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But, but be on guard, I've told you all things beforehand. You know what's really interesting? It's interesting to read Josephus' Josephus's account. I'm calling him Bocephus, but that's Hank Williams Jr. Josephus' account of the Roman war, and to compare it to Jesus' statements here. Now, Josephus isn't inspired. He's just writing stuff, and he's, he's got a bias. I, I've said that. He is working for the Romans, so when he writes, he's writing on their behalf. He's trying to make them look good. But if you were to sit down and compare the two, which I have done, Josephus affirms everything that Jesus is saying here to the point. I mean, he describes the Roman war on Judea as being horrific. I already said hundreds of thousands killed. He estimates that in and immediately around the city of Jerusalem alone, about 1.1 million died. And that's not because uh, Jerusalem normally had that many people in it. It's not that big of a town. But remember, in the ancient world, if you see the Romans coming and you're in a little village and you got no walls, no protection, what are you going to do? You're going to run to the city with the walls. You're going to go to the place that has the supplies and has the weapons and has the army. And so the people of Judea had fled to the city, swelled its population for refuge and to defend the city. He estimates 1.1 million people died. He describes one day in particular when you know, famine is breaking out, disease in the city, because there's so many people in such close quarters, and it's terrible that the Romans had built siege works around the city to, to take it. And he describes one day where the Jews just went up to the top of the wall, and I guess he's watching this from a distance because he's there, and they just start throwing off the bodies of all the people who had died. And he estimated that the pile was about 140,000. I can't even begin to process that kind of a number, but it's not that unusual as you look through antiquity to see events of war, famine, pestilence, siege, etc. You know, he affirms what Jesus is saying here, even down to the details of these comments about false Christs and false prophets uh, performing signs that would lead people astray. He tells of, of, about false prophets who were inside the city who were encouraging the people to stay. Because the Romans were welcoming them out. The Romans were trying to end this thing. So give up, come out, that's great. Well, you know, I don't know what they actually did to them once they gave up. But they were trying to get people to come out of the city. And the prophets are like, don't go. God's about to deliver us. Let's all rush up into the temple and protect it and defend it. So there are these false prophets. And he, he talks about signs that were done in the city. He talks about a light appearing around the altar in the temple he talks about a heifer that was being led to slaughter, to sacrifice, who gives birth to a lamb there in the midst of the temple. He talks about the doors of the temple opening on their own. And we, in our modern mindset, we read those things and we first like, well, that's stupid. He's probably just making stuff up. But I'm just saying, keep in mind, 40 years before Josephus penned those words about things that were happening inside the city during this time, Jesus himself predicted that false prophets would perform signs that, if it were possible, could even deceive the very elect, the and I think that time it is referring to believers. And so my first observation had to do with the fact that I think his commands, his thoughts here validate our interpretation that this all refers to the destruction of the temple. My second observation is that this would be a terrible, 
terrible time, beyond imagination, um, not just for the temple, but for Judea as a whole. And my third and final observation is that I think Jesus is saying these things to his disciples so that going forward, they understand they have no allegiance to this temple, only to him. You know, why does he need to tell them to flee all of these terrible events? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Wouldn't you do that naturally? You're in a village, you're a farmer, you're a fisherman somewhere, and you begin to hear rumors that the Romans are coming through, and they're angry, and they're killing everyone in their path, and they're heading to Jerusalem. Where do you go? <laughs> like, I'm not running in their path. I'm, I'm going somewhere else. Yet, I don't think the disciples would have run away. I mean, if you just look at the hundreds of thousands of their fellow Jews, you'll see Many did not. Perhaps even most did not. Instead of running away from the temple, they run towards it. And I think they did this partially because they thought that the temple offered them some of God's protection, but also because of some desire, some zeal on their part to protect the house and city of God against the Gentile aggressors. You know, the problem with that was God was done with the temple. He was done with the city. He had pronounced judgment against it. And in a weird reversal of fortunes, God is now on the Romans' side. You know, they become the instrument of his wrath and his judgment against the temple, the Jerus uh, Jerusalem, and national Israel. And so all of these people who flock to Jerusalem for safety and to defend this building and the city, they are actually standing against God, not for him. And the disciples' first reaction would no doubt have been to do the same. They've already expressed their great love for this building, right? See the great stones and the great buildings. They, they, they understand what it represents. This is their worldview. And their worldview, I think, would naturally lead them to rush to the city's defense just like everyone else. But Jesus is telling them to flee. <laughs> Don't stand in the way of God's judgment. It doesn't work out too well for people who do that. He's telling them that they have no more allegiance to this place. Its day is done. Their allegiance has now changed. God no longer dwells in a house made of wood and stone and gold. He no longer reveals himself through the Shekinah glory appearing inside the Holy of Holies. God has now come to dwell with man and reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that the temple foreshadowed Jesus fulfilled. Do you hear that? Everything that the temple foreshadowed, Jesus comes and fulfills. So that in, in Matthew 12, for example, when he's arguing with the Pharisees, he can say to them, something greater than the temple is here. Who? Me. Or as John writes in John chapter 2, as he's talking about a situation that was unfolding, he says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? And now John pauses the story and he inserts his own comment. He says, but when he was speaking about the temple, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. They've got no more allegiance to this place. None at all. Their allegiance was now to Jesus and Jesus alone. Folks, do you know what the New Testament calls us both individually and corporately? 
We are the temple of God. Your bodies are the temple of God, we're told. The church is the temple of God. Uh, This is how God now dwells with his people. Rather than than filling a, a room, the Holy of Holies, with his Shekinah glory, he fills his people both personally and corporately with his spirit. He dwells with us. He is in our midst and in our hearts. He has made us his people, a nation, a priest, a holy nation, all because of and to the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. He truly is the stone that the builders rejected, which God has now made the cornerstone of a new and living temple, not made with hands. Unlike anything that had existed before, so much more glorious because it goes to the glory of God. You realize three points that come out of that truth right there, just that alone, we're stopping right here today. Number one, that means you're never alone. You're a believer in Jesus, you are never alone. There's no sense I have to go to Jerusalem to meet with God. I have to go to this place to be in his presence. You stand in his presence continually. Number two, talk about holiness. The the, the Jews were zealous for the holiness and the separateness and the purity of the temple. This abomination that would desolate it was, was abhorrent to them. Do we have any less need to pursue holiness individually or corporately? We are the temple. Think about worship. We we don't have to show up at feasts and at times of the year to to give our offerings to God and sing praises to him. We stand continually before his face, worshiping him in everything we do, night and day. We're no different than them. The disciples, this is. We, We don't owe allegiance to anyone or anything else now. We have our allegiance. It belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. We, you, are the temple of God. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, I am reminded in this that all the glory comes back to you, that you are the central emphasis of the scriptures, the central emphasis of God's plan, of his dealings with humanity. You you, You are our everything, and we owe our allegiance to you and to you alone, the one who died for us so that we could live. And I pray that you will help us to remember that we are now the temple, that you have come to dwell in us personally, in our hearts, but also in us as a church, corporately, that this is now where your spirit dwells with man. This is now how you are working through the nations. And so help us just to come and recognize and find our hope and our confidence in this fact that we are never alone. Help us to to come then and pursue holiness and and, and righteousness in the same ways to, to, to fight the abominations that would so easily enter in both to our lives and to this church, to come in genuine worship to you, praising you constantly, singing, praying constantly without ceasing because we get to live before your face. And so I thank you, Jesus, that you have made all these things possible. Our hope is in you. Our confidence is in you. Our allegiance is to you. So we give you praise and glory today for our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.